All right, we're in a new book study today, Acts chapter 1. It's an exciting book, so let's take our Bibles and go to Acts chapter 1. And what I typically do when we begin a new book study together is I give a, a little bit of some highlights, some bullet points, an overview of the book so we can kind of understand what we're about to read. And so for you note takers, the writer of the book of Acts is Luke. Now that is the same one who was inspired by the Spirit to write the gospel that bears his name, the gospel of Luke. Luke is the only Gentile writer in the Bible. And God used him to pen the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And in some ways, Acts is a continuation of Luke's Gospel. It's like a sequel. Luke, uh, by trade, was a physician, we learn from Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, and he became a traveling companion of Paul's. In fact, he appears to join Paul in the story in the book of Acts in chapter 16 on one of Paul's missionary journeys that begins at Troas. That's where Luke seems to join him because Luke, in writing the account of the book of Acts, goes from the pronoun they to the pronoun we in the book of Acts. And so it it seems to suggest that he inserts himself now in in the narrative, in the story. So he goes from they to we. And that was when pronouns actually meant something. Yeah. So, so they and we, and he includes himself in that. <clears throat> Those are not his pronouns. That's just how he then inserts himself in the story. Okay, let's move on. The book of Acts, isn't it good though when you come to church, kind of get to center yourself in the Lord and like, okay, all the craziness in the world, let's get centered on the truth again. Okay. So the book of Acts written sometime around 60 to 69 AD, Acts and the Gospel of Luke both are addressed to Theophilus. You'll see his name mentioned in verse 1, Theophilus in Greek just translates lover of God. Uh, and some believe that Theophilus is a pseudonym for the church, that this is a reference to Uh, how the church loved the Lord, and so he's writing to the early church. But uh, more than likely, he's writing to an actual person, that Theophilus was a real individual. Uh, Not the best name, to be honest. I mean, in Greek, it translates lover of of God, but, you know, it's like the parents looked at that kid and said, this is the awfulest kid I've ever seen. (laughs) All right. You know, it's it's tough being me, friends. So... um, so anyway, he, he wrote to an individual Theophilus in, in Luke's gospel and here in, in the book of Acts, and it is likely that, now hear me on this because this, this kind of frames context of the culture, it is likely that yes, Luke was a physician, but that he was an indentured servant or a slave to Theophilus, because back in that day, if you could afford it, you had your own personal physician, wouldn't that be wonderful, um, and no HMOs either, and, um, and, but so it's, it's likely that that um, Luke as a physician was an indentured servant or a slave to Theophilus and that he's writing these biblical accounts and he's inspired by the Holy Spirit but he writes the gospel of Luke and now he writes Acts to Theophilus who more than likely has allowed him to go on these missionary journeys with Paul as a traveling companion of Paul. And so that, that's all we know about uh, Theophilus, very, very little, but he addresses both of these letters to him. And the book of Acts is called Acts of the Apostles. Now in some of your Bibles it might just simply say Acts. Uh, in my New King James Version, it actually says Acts of the Apostles uh, because it documents the activities and the ministry and the miracles 
uh, that God performed through the apostles in the first century. But ideally, it could be titled the acts of Jesus through the apostles. Because what, we're see, hap, what we see happening through the book of Acts is how God uses them in miraculous and amazing ways to impact the world for God's glory. So I'm going to read here, that's the brief intro on the book. I'm going to read from chapter 1, the first 11 verses. So if you have your Bibles open there to Acts 1, uh, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. And it says this, The former account I made, talking about his gospel, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, now Luke's quoting Jesus, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 6. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, And a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so now come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven." All right, so we'll pause there. This first chapter of Acts is somewhat of an epilogue to the Gospels that we've just finished studying, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you're new to Cornerstone, we just go straight through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and we've just finished going through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And now Acts is somewhat of an epilogue in in chapter 1 because it gives a conclusion to Jesus' earthly ministry before he is taken back up, before he ascends back to heaven. Now, that doesn't mean we've heard the last from Jesus. In fact, Jesus appears to Paul on the road to Damascus in chapter 9 here in Acts. Uh, He speaks to Peter in a vision in chapter 10. He speaks to Paul in a vision in chapter 18. And Jesus physically appears again to Paul in, in chapter 23. And then, of course, in addition, we're not done with Jesus in the New Testament because there are many times that he speaks in the book of Revelation, particularly the seven letters to the seven churches. And so this isn't the end of Jesus. I mean, listen, he is eternal and he is co-equal with God because he is God. So when we read here about the end of his ministry, it's just that, the end of his public earthly ministry. What he's done is finished. He he went to the cross. He died for the sins of the world. He uh, appeared to people for 40 days. That's what we just read in verse 3. And, and, uh, and then he ascends back into heaven, that's verse 9. And then also what we just read, two men appear wearing white apparel, these are angels. And they appear in verse 10, and they tell the disciples who are staring at the sky as Jesus ascends right before their eyes... 
And the angels say to them, listen, he's going to come back in the same way in which he went. And he left, he departed, we learn from verse 12, from the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. And when Jesus returns again, he will come back to the earth and he will come to the Mount of Olives Zechariah the prophet said that when he touches the Mount of Olives, there will be a great earthquake and the mountain range will split moving north to south and he will establish his kingdom for a thousand years on the earth and after that there will be a new heaven and a new earth and so we shall be with the Lord forever and I'm looking forward to Jesus coming again. Amen? And so that's what... That's what Acts is talking about here. It's the end of his earthly ministry, and he's ascending back into heaven, and now he's going to come again. And that's what we wait for, the blessed return of of our Lord. And before Jesus ascended back into heaven, what we read here in Acts 1 is that he gives a charge to his disciples. Because he's basically, in effect, saying to them, I'm handing you the baton of my ministry and my message, that I want you now to go throughout the earth, starting locally in Jerusalem, and then moving out to the province of Judea and Samaria, and he adds, to the ends of the earth, so that people might hear the good news of what Jesus has done. And so he commissions them, he charges them. And and so in effect, you're seeing here the birth of the church, the birth of the New Testament church. We are living now in the church age. It is that time between when Jesus ascended back to heaven and when he's coming again. And he charges, starting with his disciples, but really all of us who are followers of Christ, to go out, starting with our own locality, and then branch beyond until the whole world hears. And so this is that charge, this is that commission, and we see that charge in verse 8 of chapter 1 here of Acts. So I'm going to throw the verse up on the screen for you, but here's what Jesus says. But you shall receive power, the Greek word is dunamis, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth." Now, notice with me in this passage that part of the charge when Jesus commissions his disciples, and by extension us, who are followers of Jesus, I want you to go out, starting in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth, and share the good news of my message. He knows that in order to do this, we need something. And what we need is power. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why he says right there, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses. We see, we can't effectively be his witnesses without his power. And Jesus knows as he hands the baton of ministry to his followers that in order to effectively be his witnesses in the world, to be bold in our faith and to have any sense of victory over sin and temptation, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. And so this is Jesus commissioning and charging uh, the early church with this directive. And here we are some 2,000 years later and thousands of martyrs later who literally laid down their lives and shed their blood for the cause of Christ to spread this good news that Jesus loves the world, that Jesus died for every sinner in the world so that we might have our sins forgiven and go to heaven when we die. And so, listen, many martyrs have gone before us. In fact, in in this verse, when Jesus says, and you shall be my witnesses, circle that in your Bibles, because in the original Greek language, it is the word martus, M-A-R-T-U-S. We get our English word martyr from that word. 
I mean, the real definition of a witness for Jesus is to be prepared to die for Jesus. Okay, now, you know, the word martyr has been corrupted now by Islamic extremists, right? And so this is not being a martyr that you kill others for the cause, all right? This is being a martyr when they kill you for the cause. And, and so, um, and, and the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. I mean, we, we are here today because many have laid down their lives uh, for the cause of Christ. And in order for the disciples to be equipped with the ability to spread this good news, often in the face of persecution and, and death, they would need, as do we, the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus speaks about here in verse 8. Again, this is the same power that we need. Look, we, we need Holy Spirit power to be bold witnesses in our day. We need Holy Spirit power to resist temptation and sin. We need Holy Spirit power to be vessels that God would use for His miraculous purposes, for His glory. Look, God, God still does miraculous things in the earth today, through human vessels. The power of God's Spirit, but it's for His glory. We're just the vessels. Listen, this is why Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Talking about earthen vessels that we are. What's the treasure? The treasure of a relationship with Jesus, the gospel of Christ, and a relationship with Him. It's a treasure. We have this treasure. Listen, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay. To show that this all-surpassing power, dunamis, is from God and not from ourselves. So there is, we are vessels of His power to still be used in the world today for His glory, for miraculous things. And so let's not, let's not quench the Holy Spirit. God is still at work in marvelous and miraculous ways. And, and, and truthfully, there are a lot of Christians who are saved... They're on their way to heaven, they're born again, but they're living powerless lives. They're struggling to have victory over sin. They are unable to be bold with their witness. They are tired of running the race and they are wondering if there's anything more to this Christian life than just simply waiting for the return of Jesus. And maybe this describes you. And maybe you're in the right place for this Bible study today and in the ongoing weeks as we go through the book of Acts because uh, this is a wonderful book that reminds us of the power of the Holy Spirit. So let me pray first and then we'll, we'll dive into this study together. Lord, we thank you for this time in your word. As we open up the book of Acts, we pray that you would uh, cause these stories to come alive in our own hearts that we would understand the person and power of the Holy Spirit. And we thank you that you've preserved these things and recorded these things for us to, to read so that we can understand these things. And I pray that we would have eyes to see and, and ears to hear and a heart that would receive what you would say to us today and in the coming weeks as we make our way through this book together. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. There was a Swedish chemist by the name of Alfred Nobel who invented dynamite in the year 1867. 
In the year 1888, Alfred Nobel's brother named Ludwig, Ludwig, Ludwig Nobel, died. But in that year, in 1888, a French newspaper mistakenly printed Alfred Nobel's obituary and not Ludwig. And in the obituary they, of Alfred, which was mistaken, they referred to Alfred Nobel as, quote, the merchant of death because he had invented dynamite, which because of its explosive, potentially destructive nature, they saw as uh, of great concern. And so this newspaper in France wrote Alfred's obituary and called him the merchant of death. Well, Alfred Nobel read his own obituary, okay? That would be a strange thing, wouldn't it? And saw how he was labeled the merchant of death, and he determined to change his reputation. And so he decided to will his entire estate, his fortunes upon his death, to create a a fund that would distribute prizes in the areas of chemistry, physics, medicine, literature, peace, and later on, economics. And it is now known as the famous Nobel Prizes. And that was Alfred Nobel's wish so that he wouldn't be known as the merchant of death. He would rather be known for his philanthropy. Uh, He changed his reputation in that regard, the inventor of dynamite. Now, I share this story with you because the, the English word dynamite comes from this Greek word for power, dunamis. Dunamis. And if I could just be so bold to say, and I don't mean it in a destructive way, but we're, we're due for an explosion by the Holy Spirit. The church, the church of Jesus Christ is long overdue for a new, fresh, powerful, explosive work of the Holy Spirit. So when you read about power in the book of Acts, by the way, dunamis is mentioned 10 times in the book of Acts. This is not the only reference, but this is the first reference in Acts 1-8 in the book of Acts to dunamis. There's a power involved with the Holy Spirit that we need to understand and tap into. Now, interestingly, the word love is mentioned more than 100 times between the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the word love mentioned more than 100 times. The word love is not mentioned a single time in the book of Acts. The operative word is power. And how do we receive that power? It is power associated with, which comes from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, that term, the Holy Spirit, Ruach HaKodesh in Hebrew, is found 56 times in the book of Acts. This is a book about the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so again, Acts 1.8 The verse is still up there behind me. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, in order to understand this, we have to have a baseline of understanding first who is the Holy Spirit. And when we were in the Gospel of John a few months ago between chapters 14 and 16, I already gave a teaching called Who is the Holy Spirit? So you can actually go on our archives and, and, uh, and, and hear that again or watch that again if you, or for the first time if you weren't here. Because Jesus spends a considerable amount of time, three chapters in our Bibles, 14 to 16, talking about who is the Holy Spirit and the availability of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now I'm not going to 
reteach that, but I do want to just give three quick bullet points to summarize who is the Holy Spirit. For the sake of those of you who weren't there for that teaching or you're brand new to the church and you don't really understand who the Holy Spirit is. So three quick bullet points. First of all, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. What we mean by that is we worship one God who reveals himself in a plurality of three persons, God the Father, God the Son, that's Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the principal part of the Godhead that we're looking at throughout the book of Acts. Now, I referenced there Genesis 1, 26 and 27, because the first time you see God referring to himself in a plurality is Genesis 1, 26. And listen to the plural pronouns. He said this, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And the plural pronouns is a reflection of the fact that God is one God who reveals himself in three persons. And what's interesting is the very next verse, Genesis 1, 27, it switches to singular pronoun and it says this. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And so the combination of plural ver- uh, pronouns in Genesis 1.26 and singular pronouns in the very next verse is an indication to us that God reveals himself in three persons, but he is one singular God. Number two, the Holy Spirit has always existed being co-equal and co-eternal with God because he is God. When we read about the power of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, particularly when we look at the story of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, it's not like the Holy Spirit was first created and then, you know, came onto the world scene. The Holy Spirit has always existed because he's part of the Godhead. And it tells us in Genesis 1, 2, okay, the second verse of the whole Bible refers to the Holy Spirit there at the time of creation. It says, the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So Holy Spirit has always been present, being co-equal, co-eternal with God because He is God. And then number three, just another final bullet point. The Holy Spirit is not an it or just a force. He has all the attributes of personality. Okay, the Bible records these things. He has a mind. 1 Corinthians 2.11, Paul wrote, For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. So the Holy Spirit has a mind. He knows the things of God. He has a will. Regarding the gifts of the Spirit, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills, as the Holy Spirit determines. And also he has emotion. In Ephesians 4.30, Paul says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So we grieve the Holy Spirit when we sin against God. And so the Holy Spirit is grieved. That's emotion. And so he has all the attributes of uh, personality. And thus, don't refer to the Holy Spirit as it or just some kind of a force. Uh, so this is the Holy Spirit about whom Jesus uh, said much in John 14 to 16. And now we're going to see the, the ministry and the, the availability of the Holy Spirit here in the book of Acts. And so the question becomes, here's the big question, how do you get the Holy Spirit and the power that comes with the Holy Spirit? I want to walk you through some things that Jesus said, starting back in John 14. If you'll take your Bibles and go just to the left a few pages to John 14. And I want you to see how we receive the Holy Spirit. 
by referring you to things that Jesus said. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And so when you look in the scriptures and see what Jesus said, in John chapter 14, I want you to notice because the timeline is important. John chapter 14 is part of this upper room discourse when Jesus has this private conversation with his disciples in the upper room just before he's crucified, okay? So what we're about to read in John 14 happens in this conversation before he's crucified. And I'm actually going to throw the verses up on the screen because I want to highlight a couple of words. But if you have it in your Bi- there in your Bibles, you can follow along and, and you can circle some of these words. So here's what Jesus said, John 14, verses 16 and 17. He says, and I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth. Okay, this is the Holy Spirit. Whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. All right, notice those final words there, because there are two Greek prepositions that are used in the text, because Greek is the original language. There are prepositions in our English Bibles, too. But I'm going to take you to the Greek, the original language of the New Testament. There's two Greek words that are used here, prepositions that capture aspects of the ministry of the Holy Spirit right from the lips of Jesus. The first word you can circle in your Bibles is the preposition with. In Greek, it is para, P-A-R-A, and it means with, near, or around. And notice Jesus says there that the Holy Spirit, and he uses he pronouns, not it, okay? It's not a force. He is part of the Godhead. For he dwells with you. Now, that's present tense, Holy Spirit dwells with you, para. In other words, the Holy Spirit is around you, near you. And he helps us to understand the first role of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of a person is to be near us, around us, with us, drawing us, influencing us, wooing us, if you will, whispering to us, leading us, to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. No one comes to faith in Jesus except that first the Holy Spirit was working on us, influencing us, and wooing us into a relationship with Jesus. That's the first thing that the Holy Spirit does. And that's why Jesus said present tense. He's with you. He's around you. He's working. He's moving in your hearts. This is the aspect of the Holy Spirit working on us to bring us to the saving knowledge of Jesus. In fact, Jesus said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And God uses the Holy Spirit to draw us. In fact, also in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, it says no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So that's the first ministry of the Holy Spirit, working with us, around us, near us, influencing us, whispering to us, drawing us, so that we would finally surrender and receive Christ as our Savior. But then also there, in that same verse, when Jesus is instructing his disciples, and then by extension us, here's the work of the Holy Spirit, he uses future tense. And he says, and the Holy Spirit will be in you. And that's the second preposition. It's the Greek word en, spelled very similar to English, just with an E. And en in Greek means in or within. And, and Jesus said it future tense, because he's speaking to his disciples 
because this is before Jesus went to the cross. And he's talking about a time, which actually is not many days later, when they would believe in Jesus as Savior and the Holy Spirit would come in them. Now, when did this happen? Uh, Jump over to John chapter 20 in your Bibles. Uh, John chapter 20. I want you to see just a couple of verses that Jesus shares with his disciples. But now note with me that in John chapter 20, Jesus has already now risen from the dead. So he's been crucified, buried. Three days later, he rose from the dead and he appears to his disciples here in John chapter 20. And in John 20, we read this starting in verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Okay, they're looking at the marks of his crucifixion, right? So he's in his resurrected, glorified body. In verse 21, so Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. He's commissioning them to go into the world. Verse 22, this is the critical. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, so now what we read there in John 14, where Jesus said, the Holy Spirit dwells with you and will be in you. This is when the Holy Spirit comes in them. You see, because for all intents and purposes, this moment in John 20 is when the disciples become born again. This is when they become believers in Jesus. Now, you would be correct in saying, well, wait, they already knew who he was. And that is true. Matthew 16, I mean, they are already declaring, and Peter was the first one to lead the charge. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. They knew who Jesus was. They had already believed in him as Messiah. But John 20 is the first time that his disciples actually put their faith in him as the risen Savior who had now died on the cross for their sins and risen from the dead. Do you see this? So now here in John 20, this is the first time they actually put their faith in the risen Lord who has risen from the dead having died for their sins. Okay, And it's in this moment that he breathes on them and the Holy Spirit comes in them. And what's important to understand here? is that at the moment of our conversion, when we receive Christ as Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit comes in us, okay? You get Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us. At the moment of conversion, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Romans 8, 11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So verse after verse talks about when you become a believer in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes in you to dwell in you. Now, hear me on this, because this is where it gets a little dicey and divisive in the body of Christ today. I know that there are many Christians who believe That when you get saved and you get the Holy Spirit, that that's all you need of the Holy Spirit, that that's it. But listen, if that were the case, then why is it that after Jesus breathes on them in John 20 and says, receive the Holy Spirit, 
that 40 days later, when he's about to ascend, he says in Acts 1.8, I want you to wait for the gift my father promised, because in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Wait a minute. I thought they got the Holy Spirit in John chapter 20. Oh, but that tells us, you see, that there is a difference between the indwelling of the Holy Spirit at the time of conversion and the overflowing fullness and power of the Holy Spirit subsequent to salvation. Now, this might be like a little bit controversial for some of you who are like, that's not what my tradition teaches. Okay, if you grew up in a church where your tradition is different from that, my tradition was different from that. I got to the place, though, where my tradition had to give way to Scripture, <laughs> okay? And, and, and listen, this is important for us to understand because let me go back to our, our main verse for the day. When, when we talk about the power of the Holy Spirit... Jesus uses a third preposition here in Acts 1.8 to describe this very thing I'm talking about. That there's a difference between the indwelling of the Spirit, that's John 20, and the overflowing powerful work of the Spirit, that's Acts 1.8. And here's the third preposition Jesus uses. He says there, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Circle in your Bibles the word upon is the Greek word api. And it means upon, on, or over. And, and this is what is meant by the term or the phrase, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is when the fullness of the Spirit comes upon, overwhelms, all right? Baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, again, some of you are like, well, some of you who have like Pentecostal backgrounds, you're like, yeah, preach on, Pastor G. All right, let's get into it. All right. And others of you are like, I'm not sure about this baptism of the Holy Spirit thing. Can I just, let me just put some of you at ease who are like a little wigged out, like baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's kind of a scary term growing up in my church. All right. Well, listen, you might be comforted to know Matthew chapter three, verse 11, John the Baptist, John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water. For repentance, But after me comes one more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, and he shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The first one in the Bible to talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit was a Baptist. <laughs> yes, it was. John the Baptist. And so, don't let the term scare you. In fact, Jesus mentions it too. If you have your Bible still there in Acts 1, look at verse 5. In Acts 1.5, Jesus says, Therefore, John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The word baptize in our English is from the Greek word baptizo. Baptizo means to overwhelm, to submerge, to immerse, which is why we practice water baptism here by immersion. And so Jesus is saying there in Acts 1.5, he says, listen, there's two kinds of baptisms. One is John's baptism. That was a baptism of water under repentance. And we still baptize people today when they've come to faith in Jesus. Water baptism is symbolic of identifying with the death, burial of Jesus and, and a resurrected life. You come up out of the water, you're identifying with, with the resurrected life of Jesus so that you might live a new life for him. It's, it's not a salvation practice, but it is a demonstration that you are uh, born again and belong to Jesus. And Jesus says here in Acts 1.5, there's water baptism. That's what John practiced. But he said, then there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he says to his disciples, this is what I want you to wait for. Because what he gave them in John 20 was not the full power, the overwhelming immersion 
of the Holy Spirit. That's what he says here in Acts 1.8. They are to wait for. And so, with all due respect to some of your traditions, mine included, there is a distinction in the Bible between the indwelling Spirit at the time of conversion and the overflowing, empowering work of the Spirit subsequent to salvation. And we're going to see as we go through the book of Acts how the power of the Holy Spirit came upon people. And there are times where people were already believers. They were already believers in Jesus, but that second work, that overflowing fullness of the Spirit came upon them at P. And this is important for us to understand too, because I hope that you would want that. Again, there are some of you who are living what you might refer to as like a nominal Christian life. It's like you know you're saved, you believe in Jesus, you love Jesus, you're going to heaven when you die, but but like you have no real victory over sin, you, you're not bold in your witness, you, you're kind of biding your time until Jesus returns, and you're wondering, is there more to Christianity than this? And I'm here to tell you, the fullness of God's Spirit to empower us for service with gifts and the fruit of the Spirit, to be empowered by His Spirit, there is more. And I pray that you would want that fullness of God's Spirit. In your own life, I pray that our church would want to see the fullness of God's Spirit in our church. And so I close with this verse. If you wonder, if you wonder, well, how do I how do I get that? That really is not complicated. In Luke chapter eleven, I'll just quote it. You don't need to turn there, but you can jot it down. It's Luke eleven, eleven to thirteen. Jesus said, "If your son asks any father for bread." Will you give him a stone instead? He asks rhetorical questions. Like the answer is no, right? He says, if any son asks a father for bread, would you give him a stone instead? He says, if he asks for fish, will you give him a serpent instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will you give him a scorpion? The answer to those questions are no. And then Jesus says, if you then, being evil, just as an earthly sinful father, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask? Right? Okay? It's not complicated, friends. It is asking of God, baptize me with your Holy Spirit. May I receive the fullness of and the power of your spirit, and watch what God will do for the asking. Amen? Amen. So let's close our, our time with prayer and do just that. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead to come to dwell within us, to empower us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would regularly want to be filled to overflowing with your Holy Spirit. I pray right now, Lord, that there would be a thirst in the heart of every person here and watching online for more of you. So I'm going to pause in my prayer, and if it's your desire to just be baptized, to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, then just ask Him. Lord, we we come before you right now. We do as your word tells us. You said in Luke 11... If we, being evil, know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask? And so we're asking right now. 
And I just invite you, just, just pray in your own words and just say, Lord, baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I'm asking. I'm asking right now for your power, for your presence to overwhelm me, to immerse me, to baptize me. Come, Lord Jesus, in a powerful way. I want what you spoke about in John 14, John 20, and Acts 1-8. I want the fullness of your Holy Spirit. I know I'm saved, Lord. I'm going to heaven because I've trusted you as Savior. But now I want the fullness of your Holy Spirit. Come upon me, Lord. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon me. Fill me to overflowing. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. And I believe by faith that I've received just simply because I've asked. And you've told me that you will receive if we simply would ask. So, Lord, we're asking. Fill us, Lord. Refresh us. Overflow our lives with your Holy Spirit. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen and amen. Lots more to talk about in the book of Acts. God bless you guys. We'll see you again.